I'm a fun guy. Uh, obviously, I love the game of basketball. Um, I mean, it's just more questions you have to ask me um, in order for me to tell you about myself. I just can't give you a whole spiel. <laughs> I don't even know where you're sitting at. <laughs> Welcome back, ladies and gents. Episode number 37, I believe this will be. Um, I am here with an amazing guest. His name is Eric DeRosa. Um, I'm saying that it is DeRosa, right? That's proper. It is, yes. Okay, all right. Just want to make sure I got it properly. And so, Eric, we're really excited to introduce him in just a moment. The past week has been really awesome. One announcement I wanted to share was that this past two days, I was up in Idaho Helping, as you all know, my main man, Mr. Dinez, he has done a lot for the podcast. We've always kind of been hand-in-hand hand with each other, and he moved back from Idaho to Utah. And so you guys know that he's my barber, so all my people in Utah that are listening, hit the man up. He's back, and him and his buddy are opening up a shop just in Provo. And so if you guys are near, he's by far the best barber I've ever had. And so you guys will definitely enjoy that. I enjoy it. I'm excited that he's back. I helped him move, so I'm expecting like three, four, five free haircuts, something like that. <laughs> and uh, we're excited to have him back in town, so do that. As far as other announcements, nothing else really. It's just been a good past couple of weeks. Got a couple of new opportunities. If you guys haven't seen yet, I was in a magazine called Voyage Utah for the podcast, which is really awesome. Um, you guys can go check that out at voyageutah.com slash the LMGO podcast, which is cool. Um, other than that, nothing else, and we are going to jump right in with my man, Eric DeRosa. Eric, pleasure for you coming on the podcast today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's uh, it's truly my honor, and you're not that far away, about six, six and a half hours uh, across the Colorado-Utah border, and I'm looking outside right now. It's I think as I was mentioning before we came on, it's minus one degrees right now. And it's what, yeah. 10 a.m. in the morning. The The snow is incredible and it's feeling a lot like winter and Christmas and the holidays and, and yeah. all that fun skiing stuff. Listen, Christmas, Christmas, see you relate to this. So, so everybody, Eric is, he, he, well, it seems like he's a jack of all trades. He's a ski instructor. He's a life coach. He does all these really cool things, but, um, the only reason I can handle the snow is because of skiing and Christmas. Without those two things, if there was snow, I'd just be angry. But because I can do those, I can handle the snow. Do you feel the same way? Oh, absolutely. So I grew up in New England. So I grew up in Massachusetts, southeastern Massachusetts, where there are no mountains. It's cold, it's humid, and snowy in mm. the wintertime. And I didn't ski growing up as a kid. And... So for me, snow was fun. The first day it fell, go out, play, uh, build uh, snow igloos and, and shovel. And But when I moved to New York City, I started to realize like, yeah, the snow isn't all that great. It's dirty. It's, you know, it's just cold. I have to commute and I have to go to work. And, yeah. and it wasn't until I, I got into skiing in my mid-30s that I really started to appreciate the snow and the mountains and when we moved here to Colorado in 2011, it completely and totally changed my outlook uh, on snow when I was skiing every day. And it's it's just beautiful 
as you know, in, in Utah, looking at the Wasatch and being out on the hill and, and skiing what is a different kind of snow as well out here. It's, it's dry, it's soft, and powder days are deep and fun to yeah. experience with friends. So, yeah, if it wasn't for skiing, I really wouldn't – I wouldn't want to be in a place where it was cold and snowy. Yeah, not a chance. And then Christmas, it makes Christmas really fun and special. I've been a couple other places during Christmas – just a few times in my life where if there wasn't any snow and it's like summertime, I'm like, ah, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a loss of joy. <laughs> yeah. No, I hear you. We, uh, one year we, when we were still living on the East coast, my wife and I uh, spent new, uh, Christmas Eve and Christmas day in Palm Springs. It's where her grandparents live. And it was the first time we had ever spent the holiday in a place that was warm. It was palm trees and it, it felt really weird. Uh, mm. But for me, when I think of Christmas, there's there's one one of my ski guests. Uh, I've been skiing with her for a very long time. She's now a sophomore in college, and and it's one of the cool memories that I have, and something that I always look forward to because she's always here for Christmas, and we always spend Christmas skiing on the hill. It's always a quiet day, and uh, we always have such a fun time. So that's coming up for me, and in a little little less than a week so really yeah. i'm really excited for for what's gonna what's gonna be a fun ski season with a lot of really fun fun guests over the coming weeks wow that's so awesome that would be so fun for real one day i'll get out there and you can you can teach me some new skills i'm trying to do uh, soon enough we need a backflip i need i want to do a backflip i've never done a backflip on snow. <laughs> okay i'm yeah. scared <laughs> yeah no so am i it's a it's a this, the snow looks very soft, but it's still a hard surface. And uh, I I want to be able to ski for many, many years into the future. And I don't want to end it by deciding I'm going to do a backflip on the snow and come up short. It's true. I So I, I'm a pretty – not a risky, risky guy. I'm really not like an adrenaline seeker like some people. I enjoy it. But the last time I went skiing, I'd, I had only been a couple of times – and I picked it up really quickly, and so I could, I, I did pretty well, pretty well, but nothing amazing. I wanted to do a jump, and so I waited. Everybody's doing their turn, and then I'm like, I'm gonna make this jump, and it was just a small jump, well, a big jump, but it had like a small gap, yep. and then on the other side, it didn't drop much, so it wasn't like anything too scary, but I overthought it, and I did get scared, and I went too short. And the gap, I just hit the whole side of the jump. Boom! Skis popped off. Everybody up on the on the hill just like sat back down because they knew there it was gonna take me a sec to get everything. Ah, what an embarrassing time! No, but um, it, it it happens. It it happens to all of us. It happens to me. I was out skiing yesterday with a couple of other uh, instructor colleagues, and it was interesting. I I get to a, a run or. I'm, yesterday happened to be it was a mogul run and i like to kind of stop and stand around and chatting with some friends and we had somebody else in the group who came by rolled right through into the mogul run and she had said you know i cannot stop at the top of a run like this because then i start to think about it and then everything goes awry and hmm. that's somebody who's been skiing and teaching for decades and so it happens it happens to all of us yeah totally um, okay, Eric, switch, switching gears just a little bit here, and we'll actually be staying on somewhat. I'm glad that we talked about skiing and your experience with skiing, because I know that 
with everything you're doing, skiing has been a part of it and has been a part of helping you with certain experiences. Everybody, Eric is a, he's, he's a coach really for mental health and he wants people to be open and willing to talk about mental health and, and make sure it's a normal thing. Growing up, I know you've had some certain experiences. If you wanted to explain first exactly what you do and then we'll jump into to your experiences and kind of kind of focus on you a little sure. bit. Sure. So we'll take the the present and we we'll go back as we discuss parts of my story yeah. uh, for the past, but since 2011 I've lived here in Snowmass Village, Colorado and for your audience who may not necessarily be familiar with where Snowmass is, I'm sure they've all heard of Aspen. And so we are part of the Aspen Snowmass ski area. We're about 120, 130 miles just to the west, southwest of Denver. And as I had mentioned, uh, we about six and a half hours from my front door to the entrance of the Snowbird Ski Resort, uh, somewhere mm. that I love to ski when I'm over in Utah. And mm. so in addition to teaching skiing now full time in the winter since uh, this, the 2011-2012 season, in December of 2020, uh, along with my co-host Mark Fernandes, I launched a podcast, which is called From Survivor to Thriver. And the podcast, uh, when we launched it, we were in the height of the COVID pandemic. I had just returned from a trip to a very warm and tropical place, returned, looked up at the mountains and realized that it was going to be a very, very different ski season for me. As I make my living on the snow, we had ended the prior season on March 14th when COVID shut us all down uh, around the country. And, and I hadn't really mourned the loss of and the ending of that ski season. And here we were again. It, it was uh, late November and I was looking up and seeing the snow. And I realized that I had the tools. I had a therapist. I had been through this several times, but that I was, I was starting to struggle. And I could only imagine if I was struggling, what other people who are going through the COVID pandemic must be feeling like. Both those who are dealing with their own mental illnesses, as well as those who may not, but were succumbing to COVID anxiety, which as we now know was a real thing. And so we launched that podcast with uh, the number one goal was to help other people. And it's all about shattering stigmas, building community, empowering voices for those who have been affected by mental illnesses and trauma. And to this day, we, you know, we've launched, uh, we have 90 episodes out and it's all about having guests on our show where they can share their story of moving from survivor, right? Living with whatever it, it might've been from a mental health standpoint an addiction recovery standpoint, uh, to thriving, which is essentially that point in time when you recognize I need to make a change. Uh, mm -hmm. And whether it's getting, uh, getting help for you know, your mental health, whether it's uh, going into recovery, whether it's just picking up the phone and, and speaking to a friend and saying, hey, I'm not okay, uh, I, wanna, I wanna be able to talk. And so that's been uh, really what's kept me occupied uh, both during ski season, uh, but especially once, once I'm off the snow, it's, it's full time for me. And, 
And I recently created from Survivor to Thriver LLC. And so that includes not only the podcast, but I've been publicly speaking uh, around the country to high school students and their and their families about the importance of speaking up and how to have conversations around mental health and especially for the students recognizing you're not alone and mm -hmm. what they're experiencing it doesn't have to be the same way that it was for me yeah 100 percent. very awesome and it's cool to see the way that you've been able to while you know you're overcoming your own things you turned towards other people and that is a huge aspect of what has helped you that's one thing I harp on a lot with everybody who listens to the podcast every time I do the podcast is just if we only turn inward, it's, you know, we're only usually we're just going to cause a little bit more problems because we overthink anxiety starts increasing so on and so forth. But when we turn outward and say, OK, how can I use this to help others? Then all of a sudden there's options that open up. And like you're saying, you're looking at the mountain, it's covid. You're like, dang, this is going to be a different experience. But because of that, you're able to go where you were going. Yeah. You're absolutely right. And I think one of the really important things uh, that I want to get across to your audience is that before we can even begin to help others, the first thing we need to do is to be able to help ourselves. And, and even then, when we think we've been able to help ourselves or heal ourselves, there are times when you know, we might take a step or two back. And that's totally okay. I always talk about my tagline is it's perfectly okay to not always be okay. And I've added in that always because there will be days and times when we're feeling a bit off. But if we're feeling off for, you know, a couple of weeks at a time or a month, that's when it's time to reach out for help. And I have found that as I've done all of that inward work and begun to do a lot of work externally with with others and helping others, that's also helped me tremendously on my own healing journey. It's helped yeah. me to grow. It's helped me to learn from other people. Uh, it's building building the community. I talk about uh, building the community. It's one person at a time. And yeah. what for me growing up, you know, I was you know I was born in 1971 at a time when nobody talked about forget mental health. Nobody talked about cancer. Nobody talked about any of these <laughs> things. It was always yeah. whispered. And so now it's it's about building these communities one person at a time where people can comfortably speak with one another without fearing being judged, without feeling there's a stigma around it. And, and I'm happy to see that in, in the current generation, as I step into schools and I talk to people, that it really is starting to become destigmatized. And, and mm. it's cool to see kids talking to each other or, or texting each other about, oh, I'm going to see my therapist or I'm on this medication or... Uh, so it seems like we're moving more and more in the direction of mental health being more of a kitchen table conversation. Yeah, totally. And so I, speaking, I'm glad that you referenced to your your childhood and upbringing. I guess that's kind of where I would like to start because while you were young, I guess a lot of your own thoughts in regards to what we're talking about right now, this is where it stems from. I know that you had certain disorders as far as like OCD anxieties and that kind of stuff. And you just had no idea if you want to take us through that, that'd be cool. Sure. So uh, as far back as I can remember, which is around the age of seven, I suffered from uh, severe anxiety and OCD at the time I being young, 
I knew something was different, but I didn't know what it was. And I certainly didn't know how to verbalize it. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't necessarily in, in an environment or growing up in a time where that was even discussed. And so for me, I kept it buried deep as a secret as I moved through middle school and high school and college and graduated from college. And then I went to work in New York City and went to graduate school. It was something that I lived with. I wore a facade and I was very good at masking it and showing the outside world the person that I wanted them to see. Nobody really got to see what was on the inside. And for me, as I look back, it really started with not being able to sleep Mm. when I was younger and having a fear of sleeping. And that was really my first, what, what I would call OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder. Memory was not being able to sleep. I would wake up, I would walk around the house, and then I would spend the rest of the next day worrying about the fact that I wasn't going to be able to sleep. And so that Mm. began that perpetual loop. And then along with that came the compulsions or the rituals. And it started with simple things like counting. Everything Mm. for me had to be done in threes. I would turn my light switch on and off three times. If I did it four times, I would have to start over. Uh, And it moved, then it moved into things like, you know, very, very, very organized and detailed where uh, I give this example. Uh, I was speaking to a a group of parents at a, in a library a few months ago. And there, there was a cart that had some books on it that had recently been returned. And I said, to give you an example of what my, my, uh, compulsions and rituals were like, I said, if I saw that cart, uh, you know, a few years ago, I would have to go over to it. I'd have to take all of the books. I would organize them from smallest to biggest in alphabetical order by color. And if somebody came and removed one of those books, I'd have to start that all over again. Because mm-hmm. for me, uh, and for those who suffer with, with OCD, it's all about control because we feel like when, when it comes to anxiety, and it comes to other types of anxiety disorders, we feel like we don't have control. And that's where the OCD came in. Mm. And so for me, throughout my childhood and throughout my adolescent years, as I, as I would have intrusive thoughts and I would have obsessive thought loops, I would, I would come up with different compulsions that would make me feel as though I was in control and I was safe. But what, as I've learned later in life, it was only perpetuating uh, the problem. Yeah. Wow. That's so unique. And I know that we talked a little bit about this. And I'm wondering your thoughts. Because most people, including myself, don't necessarily understand OCD. When I think of OCD, it's more just like like the organizing. And I think that mm-hmm. makes sense to me. But I know that there's another aspect that you talked about when we we talked just the other week. And if you want to explain that to kind of portray what it actually is. Sure. So I think that's it's really interesting that you bring that up because for a long time, even people that were very close to me always thought that I was an extremely neat and organized person. And and a lot of times people from the outside look at OCD and they think that is in fact what OCD is. It's just somebody who has to have everything extremely neat and organized. What it really is, is control. And so the OCD loop 
for me, uh, it was around intrusive thoughts. And so it would start, you know, we were talking about sleeping. And then as I got older, another thought that would pop into my head was this fear of dying from you know, a severe illness. And it gets to the point where you convince yourself, your irrational brain convinces your, your entire body that you are in fact sick and are gonna die. It's not rooted, it is not in, rooted at all in reality. Uh, and what it does is it creates a tremendous amount of anxiety and fear. And then on the other side of OCD, is the compulsive side and, and the rituals. And so what people see from the outside, uh, as you brought up in the example of, of being neat, it's really not just being neat, but it's about having all of those things in a very specific place because it that sense of control, being able to do that, is this false sense of safety and security. Mm. Uh, I'm trying to think of some other you know rituals that, that I've had in life and even, uh, you know, it's going to sound really interesting, but drinking water. So there, there was a time where I would drink water and as I was drinking a glass of water, I would count how many times I was swallowing. Um, mm. right. And, and so for me, everything had numbers attached to it. And if I wasn't counting, then I would have to start all over again. Um, and, and it's always uh, the compulsive side comes with this fear of if I, if I don't do this, so if I don't straighten my books or if I don't highlight my notebook in a, in a very specific way or if I don't count to the exact number each and every time, something really bad is going to either happen to me or to someone who I love. And mm -hmm. so it exacerbates that fear rather than soothing it, which is what those of us with OCD think it's doing. It exacerbates that sense of insecurity uh, and fear and leads to even more anxiety. And so that's why it's often so difficult to break the anxiety and OCD loop. Uh, and, I, and I've heard it throughout my own life where people will say, well, why can't you just not think about it? And, and I always respond by saying, if I, if, if I could not think about it, <laughs> right, I would, if it was, mm. if it was really that easy, I would have been able to, to change those patterns and behaviors a long time ago. Yeah. So totally it's, it's, that's really interesting and, uh, kind of opens your mind up to a lot of, just a lot of scenarios. I think about all kinds of, like if somebody else were to let's say for example you're highlighting something and it needs to be the specific way if somebody else let's say some punk kid at school comes up and he writes something else or moves something on that does that make you be like i need to flip to a new page start completely over and do it again yes so that kind of an example absolutely i can give you a real time a real example yeah, yeah. uh that i that i've talked about and and i will say he's still a friend of mine to this day we were uh, we were college roommates, and I remember my room was extremely, extremely organized. If you had walked in, you would have just thought, wow, he's super neat. He has everything in place. And if you walked into my room day after day after day, you would recognize nothing was ever moved. Nothing was ever changed. Mm. And one day, 
he decided to come back and he opened the door to my room. I wasn't there. Uh, and he moved everything. But he didn't move everything in a way where books were on the floor or um, things were on the bed. He moved it in a way. So only somebody that had severe OCD, and he did not know I had this at the time, would even recognize. And so the minute I walked into the room, it was this overwhelming sense of panic. Um, wow. My first reaction was, you know, F you. I can't believe you did this to me. <laughs> yeah. uh, but then I, I sort of looked around and thought, this, this right? You kind of go into this mode almost of, of panic and, and a bit of you, you freeze. And then I remember spending the rest of my day reorganizing my entire room. Wow. From that day on, that door was locked. <laughs> Nobody, uh, except for my uh, now wife, we were dating at the time, had the key. Uh, and I learned my lesson. I, uh, you know, I, I, now, as I've grown older, I've, I've realized part of it also was for me, I didn't want other people to know what was happening right on mm -hmm. the outside. And and so for me, that simple act of like locking the door and not letting people in was my way of, of hiding and keeping this this secret that even I didn't know how how deep it was. And, and yes, that whole with the notebook, I wish I had one nearby because I still have some of my college and, and grad school notebooks. But what I one of the things uh, that OCD came with for me was a bit of a photographic memory. And so for each class I had, I had a different notebook and I would have several different color highlighters. And I would, as I would take notes in, in the lecture hall, I would number each page of my notebook and then different topics, whether it was a definition or if it was something specific would get one color. Uh, if it was a word I needed to remember, it would get another color. And so then when I would study for an exam, uh, not only would I just be studying the material, but I'd also be memorizing the entire notebook. And so I, so I would be able to walk into an exam and, you know, when they hand you those blue books, uh, and it's probably different now, but we used to get these blue books and there'd be, you know, a handout with a series of essay questions on it. And I remember it was an East Asian history class that I, I took in undergrad and I walked in. And I read the question at first and I kind of had a mind block and I didn't know. And then suddenly I could see my entire notebook. I could mm. see like pages one to a hundred. I knew exactly what page. So I, wow. as I was sitting there, I was flipping through the notebook in my head and just kind of rewriting the notes. Wow. Uh, and that's when I, and that's when I realized like, Oh, in, in some ways what I have, right. Is something uh, that I needed to work on later in life, but also in some ways it's kind of a superpower. Um, yeah, it's, it's, totally. it's a little bit of my own, uh, filing system in my, in my brain. And, uh, even now, uh, I remember when you and I were, were scheduling this show, I, I'm still old school. I have a, a real written calendar and I have mm. things written in different colored pens and, and highlighted. And, and the difference is I now recognize that I'm not doing it for a compulsive reason. I'm doing it because it's something that is keeps me on track or um, and I think that's a very big difference is when you start to recognize things that you're doing that you don't realize versus things that you're doing with intentionality. Yeah. Wow. That's so unique. 
and it's I mean like you're saying like it can be a superpower and and it can help in a certain aspect and so how do you how do you try I guess to start first off I want to know how you recognized because you grew up in a place where nobody really talked about it and so you just had these things and people are like that's strange that he does that why is that nobody ever talked about it what made you realize hey this is an issue like what made you realize i need to do something about this so it probably wasn't until my 30s my my wife started to recognize it my wife also uh, has a form of uh, ocd and anxiety as well and so she was able mm. to to recognize it in me but until i I went to therapy, uh, I was 33 at the time, and started to talk about what was happening. I, we were truly able to put words around what I was experiencing, right? Wow. So I really thought that all of these intrusive thoughts and, and all of these obsessive thoughts were something that were unique to me, that I was different, that somehow my brain was broken, and so that's why I kept it a secret for so long is because not only did I not know how to explain it, but I was terrified that if I did, if I did tell somebody, where was I going to end up? Maybe I'd get arrested. Maybe I'd uh, be brought to you know, a psychiatric ward. And, and at that time, I didn't know as much as I do now about you know, the, the mental health world. And so I didn't know that you know, psychiatric hospitals are places where you can actually go to heal. I thought it was a place if somebody found out I'd be there for the rest of my life. Mm. Uh, and when I finally started to go to therapy and talk about what I was, the thoughts that I was having in my brain, I realized that I had a thing. <laughs> so OCD is a real thing. Mm. And then I realized there, you know, there was a link with anxiety. And then I started, we started to peel back the onion and try to discover, okay, what, what was the root cause of this anxiety, right? Which is, you know, lack of safety and security when you're a child. And so now the light bulbs are going off and I'm thinking, okay, this is starting to make a whole lot of sense. Uh, and then I started to speak more and more openly about it. I started to speak to friends about it and I started then to speak publicly about it. And then I read more about it and I realized that not, not only am I not alone, but there are so many other people out there who are dealing with this. And in fact, I'm a member of a couple of uh, Facebook groups around obsessive compulsive disorder and intrusive mm -hmm. thoughts. And I remember when I joined uh, one of the groups and I looked at, there were 20,000 people in that group. And in that moment, I thought, wow, when you were you know, 13 years old and in seventh or eighth grade, seventh grade, and thinking, gosh, I can't let anybody know what's going on. Like, I don't know what's going on myself. Would you have imagined at 51 that you'd be sitting in front of a computer and there'd be 20,000 other people who'd be posting about the exact same thing, mm -hmm. their experience with it, asking questions about it. Uh, so in many ways, it's, um, it's, it's really opened my eyes to the fact that it's it's not unique to me. Um, it's something that so many people experience. But yeah. the important thing is it's something that it's not curable, but it is treatable. And you mm. go from living with it 
or or having it manage your life um, and and being who you are to being able to live with it. Uh, mm. And that and that to me is kind of that whole survivor to thriver as as you move through um, through that kind of a, a situation. Yeah, I know that last time we talked about you said that mentally you have to go to the gym when we talked the first time you're like mentally you got to go to the gym to exercise your mind to not be so over compulsive so on so so forth and backtracking just a little bit to it also can be a superpower if you're able to control it and balance it what are what are the steps for I guess, I mean, because this is what you share with me, what are the yep. steps for controlling it and making it become more of a superpower than it is an issue? Sure. So I think for me, and I'm thinking of the therapist that I'm working with now uh, here in Colorado, and she's amazing. And when we started to look at it more, more holistically, so not just addressing one piece, not just addressing anxiety, or not just addressing OCD, but recognizing where it all came from. And then learning how to understand the brain. So that was another big piece for me, uh, understanding the primitive brain, right? And then how the brain develops and where these thoughts mm. are generated from. So the one of the things we've done a lot of work with is uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. So in a way, it's retraining your brain using you know this specific tool and, and technique. And as you said, it's very much like going to the gym. And when I first started doing it, it was extremely difficult. It was, you know, it was like going out for, uh, I think back to my running days. And if you hadn't run in a very long time, the first time out, maybe you get a half mile through and you're exhausted. And the next time you kind of push through further and further. Cognitive behavioral therapy is a very similar thing. And it's really retraining your brain. Mm. And the first thing I learned was that you are not your thoughts and your thoughts are not your actions. Uh, so that was a very big piece for me because for so long I thought that if I thought about it, then I'm going to act upon it, right? And and the two are completely and totally uh, not linked. The, the second big piece was recognizing that the way to stop the obsessive thought loop is not to try to push it away. It's mm. not to really try to combat it rather it's recognizing the thought is there giving it you know a quick little appearance and then letting it move away because what what obsessive thoughts are they're really like shiny objects and the shiny object is kind of waving in front of your eyes and and it's in your brain and it wants you to focus on it because the more you focus on it the more power it has but I learned that if you just acknowledge it and then let it pass, then it no longer has any power and it won't stay with you. And so then mm. we spent a lot of time doing exercises and activities. So uh, let's, uh, let's say I find myself uh, in a room and suddenly I have an obsessive thought that comes into my mind. One of the things I'll do to interrupt that and distract it is I might look across the room and say, oh, wow, there's an orange pair of skis and a yellow pair of skis and there's a blue pair of skis. And in that moment, I'm now focused on the present and in the now. And that thought is kind of passed through and moved through my brain and I'm no longer stuck on it. The other really cool uh, exercise we did 
uh, is she wanted me to, to give the thoughts and I've spoken to many people who have done something similar is to actually give the thoughts a name and a personality so that you start to recognize, okay, well, here comes so-and-so. And for me, uh, I remember her asking me like, what are your, uh, what are your thoughts remind you of? And, and the first thing that popped into my head, I said, Oh, they remind me of hobbits. Uh, I don't know why, but they do. And <laughs> And then she said, okay, well, wh what does it look like around? And I said, well, it looks like the Shire and there's all these hobbits living and, um, and, and almost like uh, gremlins or whatever. And she said, okay, well, we're going to do a little exercise. And what I want you to do is I want you to imagine those hobbits in a house and that house represents your brain and, not, and the hobbits represent your obsessive thoughts. Mm. And I want you to get a really big fire hose and I want you to put it through the window of the hobbit house. And I want you to flood the house to as high of a level as you can. Uh, and, and by doing that, the hobbits will have to evacuate from the house or else drown. And I remember the first time I did it, she said, okay, how high have you filled the house? And I said, oh, maybe a quarter of the way. And then, you know, over time it was halfway. And then I remember doing it and finally flooding the entire house and watching, you know, the windows and the door kind of all like, explode and um and the hobbits kind of rushing out of the house almost like mm. uh going down the drain in in a bathtub and that's when i realized okay the 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 hobbits exist uh and they're never fully going to leave but now what i can do is when they come and they knock on the front door i can open the door and say oh hi uh and i'm really really busy right now you can come in for a couple of minutes, but then you're going to have to leave. And so now it's this, this, this process in my brain where if I have some type of obsessive thought, that's exactly what I'll do. I'll, I'll say, oh, yeah, oh, I remember you. Uh, all right, we can hang out for a couple of minutes, but then you know, I need to move on to, to whatever it is the next thing I'm doing. And, mm. and that is so very important in breaking that obsessive thought loop. Yeah. Wow. I really like that. That's cool. That's a cool uh, exercise to think about, especially that way you aren't able to just push it to the side, but you acknowledge and recognize that there is something there, but we're just going to acknowledge it. Like you're saying, let them in for a few minutes, but then it's time to go. And once you're able to train your brain to do that, it's just, I assume now it's more common nature than at the start. Yes. Yeah. And now it, it will sound weird to your audience, but sometimes they, sometimes the thoughts will come. Uh, and if you see me, sometimes I'll be in public. Sometimes I'll be in my house, but I'll kind of chuckle. And if you were looking from a, from a distance, you, you think, why is that guy kind of laughing? <laughs> but it's because some thought that has like passed into my mm. brain and I just kind of laugh and I'm like, Oh, you're back. Uh, <laughs> It's kind of like it's like the neighbor who you kind of don't want to see, but they come over to your house and they knock on the door and you realize like, all right, <laughs> the right thing to do is open it up and say hi and see how they're doing. But then I'll find mm. a way to say, you know, I'm busy and I need to get back to work. And I kind of do that same mental exercise. And I kind of laugh. And I'm like, oh, oh, it's you. OK, uh, you can come in. And then as they walk in the door, I kind of 
put my glance somewhere else. Uh, uh, and before you know it, that thought is, is out of my head. And mm. it's the exact opposite of what I used to do. When that thought came in, it was immediately right into a panic attack thinking, how could I think this? I'm a terrible person. I'm a horrible person. I would never do this. Yeah. That loop would continue and the, the anxiety would deepen. Uh, mm. And then when your brain is in that kind of overdrive, it gets very difficult to sleep and it gets very difficult to function. Uh, and so you can imagine where, where that goes uh, yeah. and, and, the, and the deep spiral that you can end up being. Um, yeah, totally. This is somewhat off topic and I'm just genuinely curious. I, I have something <laughs> where if anybody, like skin especially, mm-hmm. if anything touches my face, I have to wipe it with a cloth every single time. And uh, I don't know if my audience, I've never told them that, but my friends know about it and that's the worst because they always, you know, touch my face. It yep. doesn't It doesn't cause me any anxiety necessarily it doesn't cause me any any like panic but i just feel as if even if their hands perfectly clean they wipe it i'm like something's on my face and i have to wipe it off yep is that anything so here's the thing i'm not a medical professional not a medical doctor and yeah uh but in in some ways that has knowing what i do know about ocd uh Mm -hmm. you know that does have a small component of Right. There's, there's, there's a fear associated with it. Right. And then yeah. that's why you're wiping it off. And linked to that is if you don't right, do that, right. Something may happen. Right. So there's mm. that safety and security piece. Uh, mm. And it's, and it's very interesting as you were talking about, like your friends all know about it. So they do it intentionally. Yeah. And, and I think part of it is also when you start to open up and you tell your friends things like that, it takes the power of whatever that obsessive thing is away. So with you and your friends, it becomes more of a joke, right? Yeah. And it's like, oh, well, you know, when Monson, right, if I touch him on the arm, right? Like he's going to start, so all your friends come over and they do that and you have a <laughs> yeah. laugh about it. it, takes the power away. Uh, mm. But those are the exact kinds of things where, uh, you know, it can pe- put people into a spiral. And I remember for, for a while in New York city, when I really had this fear of, of dying, uh, I'd be terrified to, you know, to rub up against anybody on the subway to mm. touch the, to touch the, the pole in the middle of the subway car. And those things are, they're, they're real. They feel very real. Um, in reality, they're not, but then we do things that make us feel safe and, and comfortable. And it'd be interesting to see for you, Next time somebody does that skin on skin contact thing, if mm. you go, oh yeah, they just did that, and see if you can not yeah. wipe it with a cloth, and see if in that moment you can look across the room and be like, oh yeah, what does that poster say, and start reading, and see if that, mm. see if the activity and the behavior changes, because that's really what it is. It's it's interrupting that behavior and interrupting those thoughts. Yeah. Oh, I like that. See, look, everybody who's listening. Oh, <clears throat> sorry about that. Everybody who's listening, I'm going to take this and I'm going to do it as a test. And if everybody, if you have similar things, do the same to see just, you know, if you can use these tactics, um, like Eric's saying, to be able to see if you can combat it a little bit. I like that. I will, I'm will. i going to try it out and I'm going to see if I can 
Because really, it's every single time I have to wipe it. And even when I'm like brushing my beard, eventually I'll wipe it. Whether yep. it's in a little bit, eventually it will be wiped. Yep. That's so funny. Yeah, no, it's and, and things like that have been very, very helpful to me. Another one uh, for your, your audience who's listening, uh, when it comes to anxiety uh, mm. that I've been doing recently, I, I've traveled for work for most of my career uh, and travel on vacation and leisure. And, and I never realized that being somebody with anxiety and, and having an, uh, an empathic nature to me, that I, not only was I dealing with my own anxiety and OCD, but I would draw on the anxiety or OCD of other people around me. And so mm. the airport was always a place that was really, really challenging for me because I would step into an airport and for some reason, my, my level of anxiety and also my level of anger, just like things around me would really irritate me and bother me. Uh, and the sim smallest little things would tend to set me off. And so my therapist and I have been working on that exact issue of, oh, what is it about the airport? Well, airports are probably the place other than Wall Street where I worked. Uh, so I'm seeing the thread here of the two most uh, anxiety-laden places in the world. Mm. Being in an airport, everybody is anxious. They're worried about catching flights. They're worried about not missing. Something's happening. Bags are lost, right? There's always like, yeah. and so what she said to me is, what I want you to do is I want you to go to the airport. And I want you to intentionally look around and look for smiling people. Mm. And I thought, okay, well, this was fun. And I'm, and I'm like, just with everything else in my own mental health journey, I'm going to bring my wife into this as well. So the last trip we took in October, we were walking around Denver, Denver airport and just up and down the aisle looking for smiling people. And what I tell you, it is one of the most difficult things to do to find smiling people in an airport. <laughs> but what I, but what I noticed was just by doing that activity, mm. my own anxiety lessened because every time I would see somebody, I would immediately recognize the anxiety within them. And I would kind of look away and I keep looking for that smiling person. Uh, and that was, I can say in my probably 35 plus years of traveling, it was the first time I was in an airport where I felt just totally chill and I didn't let anything get to me. And I got on the plane and we got to you know our destination. And, and I've talked about that activity on other shows and I've mentioned it to friends of mine and, yeah. and people are now taking on the challenge of going into, uh, going into airports or whatever type of a space really causes you anxiety, whether it's a supermarket or a shopping mall and, and trying to spot and look for those smiling people. Uh, because mm. just by seeing them, what it does is it changes your own reaction. And if you see somebody smiling in a very chaotic place, it will often lead to you smiling and changing mm. your own, your own uh, persona. Mm. I like that a lot. And that's funny that it was difficult to find people smiling because the Denver airport's huge. <laughs> that's a yeah, so, airport. I mean, you've been through it. So anybody, <laughs> yeah, anybody who hasn't been through, uh, we call it DIA. So DIA uh, is one of uh, United's hubs, uh, especially for uh, a lot of travel coming either from the East coast through going to 
to the west coast or going out to uh to asia and so it's it's on par with uh you know hartsfield and atlanta and o'hare and uh in terms of some of the largest airports and what it is when i tell you how difficult it is to mm. find smiling people but the other thing i i realized is i think we had maybe a three-hour layover we had flown from aspen to denver and all of a sudden time went by so quickly I wasn't, you know, sitting at the lounge or wherever I happened to be and dwelling on, well, this person's annoying and this person's on a conference call and this is irritating me. And um, suddenly it was like I was on this hunt <laughs> for like, oh, there's a smiling person like there's one. And, and by the time, you know, you, you count up like four or five people, yeah. you realize two and a half hours has passed and uh, and it's time uh, to it's time to board your flight. So yeah, anybody who anybody who deals with anxiety and finds specific places that that cause anxiety for them, go to that place and try to try to retrain your brain a little mm. bit. It's like going to the gym. It really is. It's yeah. uh, um, you know try to find somebody uh, in a gym uh, who's um, the, the, I think the equivalent would be try to find somebody in a gym who at some point is you know is not grimacing. It's it's pretty <laughs> hard to do. <laughs> Yeah, totally. I like that a lot. That's really, really cool. Um, we got just a shortish amount of time left, and I got a couple of questions still that I want to ask. Of course. Um, real quick, if we shift gears, I wanted to ask this earlier, and so I need to, I need to get this out in the open. You have a nickname. People call you Eric Yoda, and I call you Eric DeYoda instead of DeRosa. Love that. Um, that's what I have written down in all my planners. But... Um, where did that come from? I know that we were going to talk about it. You said, let's save it for the uh, podcast. Yep. Where, where save it for the from? podcast. It's, it's funny. I was, uh, I was on a chairlift uh, with, uh, with someone a couple of days ago. Hmm. And I had my name tag on. And so for people who, for people who have skied with ski instructors before, we all, yeah, everybody has a name tag. Every resort around the world. Uh, one of the fun things we do here is people sometimes instead of having their real name on the name tag, they have a nickname and, and so mine has Yoda on it. And so that nickname, I was probably 25 living in New York. I'd been in New York maybe four years. My wife and I were having dinner at a friend's uh, house and, and the wife of the couple just said to me, she said, you know, every time we ask you a question, you always seem to know the answer. You're, you're like Yoda. And I, I just chuckled and, um, and they called me Yoda for a long time in New York. And then my wife, when we would be out, if we were in a place where it was busy or noisy and she would scream Yoda instead of my name to get my attention. Uh, and, and I would immediately you know, react to that. If you scream Eric in a room, not only is it a, a difficult name sometimes to get out, but, mm. but also, you know, there might be other people or I might be in conversation and not even recognize my name. So when we moved here to Colorado in 2011 to teach skiing, I thought, if you were a teenager, would you rather ski with Eric or would you want to ski with Yoda? And so, <laughs> so when we ordered my name tags that year, I thought, well, I'm, I'll put Yoda on it and I'll just see what happens. And so here mm. we are, you know, 12 seasons later and, you know, I don't even have a name tag with my real name on it. Uh, everyone around here knows me by Yoda. 
everyone yeah. I've skied with for you know, over a decade, uh, they they call me Yoda. They when they text me, especially kids that I started skiing with when they were in middle school or or in uh, the beginning of high school or now in college, I'll get these t- random texts. Yoda, don't tell my parents, but I did such and such last night, and uh, and so it, it it stuck. And and funny enough, some people don't know don't know me by my real name uh, oh yeah it, it happens where especially out skiing uh, if i if i'm in a group with some people and somebody somebody goes to introduce me uh and they're like oh do you know eric and they're like who um and they're like oh do you know yoda and like oh i know who yoda is right and so <laughs> yeah. it's, it's just kind of funny t- for me to to observe it. Um, and, and in reality, I saw the original, what I consider to be the original three Star Wars movies when I was a kid. Mm. Uh, and those are the only three that I've seen. Uh, but I am in, in no way like a big Star Wars fan. So it, it has <laughs> no link at all to, to me loving Star Wars or being a big yeah. fan of Yoda. So. <laughs> That's so funny. I love that. My, my brother, Jonathan, is his name. He's got a similar... Everybody has called him Jamba, J-O-N-B-A, not J-A-M-B-A like Jamba Juice, but Jamba, and he's been that since I don't even know when. But it's the same deal where I'll have people come up and they only know him by Jamba. They don't understand anything by Jonathan, or it sounds funny when a stranger would be like, "Oh yeah, Jonathan." I'm like, "That's weird. <laughs> it yeah. seems too seems yeah. too formal." <laughs> yeah, and I and I also tell people that I ski with. Because uh, sometimes, sometimes if I'm with the adults in the family, or if it's my first time skiing with, with adults, they'll say, "Do you prefer to be if I call you Eric or if I call you Yoda?" Mm. And my response is always, "If if you're about to crash, and you know, or hit a tree, uh, whatever comes out fastest, <laughs> whatever is easier for you to remember." Uh, they'll both get my attention, uh, but yeah. it's all it's all what you can remember in that moment. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good moment to remember. Too. Um, okay, Eric, Yoda, I've got one last question for you. Sure. And it's a question that I ask all of my guests because I love hearing the difference in – I just love hearing the different answers. Everybody's got their own little unique spin on it. And the the name of my podcast is Life Must Go On. We focus on, I mean, that is really, when I tell people, they're like, what's the podcast about? And I'm like, well, the name kind of sums it up. And so for you, Eric, when I say life must go on, what does that mean to you? Sure. I, so one, I love the title of the podcast and I, I really love that question. And I was, I was thinking about that before we even came on oh, cool. uh, the show and, and especially with, uh, the news that recently came out about Twitch. Uh, I think everyone at this point has read about uh, his, yeah. his unfortunate suicide. And, and, and I started thinking about my own life journey. Um, and I thought about, you know, various moments in my own life where I thought, I, I don't think I can do this anymore. I don't, I don't see a way out. I don't see the light. But in reality, looking back now these are things that we may be living with but the crisis pieces and parts are temporary um and so much about it 
is that idea of life must go on. I, I talk about I can do hard things. Um, you know, it's something I never really thought about when I was growing up, but, but I can do hard things. And, and so for me, when I think about life must go on, it's, it's just being able to say, I got this. There's a reason for me to stay. I'm going to stay that one extra day. And that one extra day may give you time to have that conversation with a loved one. Uh, it may just allow you a chance. We talk a lot on our show about the difference between reacting and responding. Um, and so just by taking that second to think about something and respond to it rather than an immediate reaction, to me, it's all about life must go on. Like, you know, each and every day is going to present itself with its own unique set of challenges. Um, but there is nothing uh, and I, I speak from my own experience with some very, very dark times and challenging moments. There is nothing that each and every one of us doesn't have the ability to get through. Um, and, and just remember, you know, as a reminder for your audience, there's, there's help and there's hope and there's a way through and, and you're not alone. And, and mm. for so long, I thought I was alone. Uh, if I had only known the reality back then, that there are other people just like me that were going through these things. Uh, it would have made going on a little bit easier. Uh, but I really and truly am glad that I made the decision throughout my life uh, to go on because mm. there's so many amazing things out there to experience and see, and it does get better, I promise. 100%. Wonderful answer. Thank you. Um, Eric, today's conversation has been a pleasure, and I know that my guests and or my uh, my audience is going to be able to take a lot from it. I've taken a lot from it, so thank you for your thoughts. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. It's truly been a pleasure and and an honor. And uh, if one person in your audience uh, takes just one thing away from the conversation that you and I had today, uh, mm. it reminds me I can see it right. I get the little photographic memory. It's it's yeah. uh, it's that emoji, the green checkbox, right, with the white check mark <laughs> in it, and I, so I check that box. And uh, yep. and again, I promise it does get better, and um, and you'll be very happy that you have decided to go on. Heck yeah, amen, my man. I appreciate <laughs> it. Thank you so much, everybody. Listen to next week's episode. Listen to the other episodes you haven't listened to. They're all great. And so thank you so much for tuning in today. And uh, as he said it, life must go on. Woo. <laughs> Boom. <laughs>